We'll be reading from Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. And the Bible reads, And two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. They say that your character is revealed in times of crisis and suffering. Anybody can be a good person. Anybody can be kind when it's easy, when it's convenient, when it's popular. But to have the right kinds of values and the right kinds of priorities and to keep your focus on things that really matter when you're suffering, that's hard to do. And that shows what our character is really all about. I would suggest to you this morning that Jesus saved out of all the sermons he ever preached... His best sermon was saved for the cross. As we read about his crucifixion in all four gospel accounts this past week, you'll notice that Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. From the moment that they nailed his hands and feet to that wood and they put that cross in its place, seven statements that Jesus made. What we're going to do today with both lessons is talk about the implications And what we learn from those seven statements. This morning we're going to talk about the first three that Jesus said from the cross. And then this evening, Lord willing, at 5 p.m. we'll come back together and we'll talk about the last four of Jesus' statements from the cross. It's the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached. When you think about the cross, think about the attributes of God. Because the cross in a very painful and a horrific and yet in a glorious and amazing way shows us what our God is like. What's God like? He's a God of love. He manifests his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. And yet he's a God of wrath and indignation because of sin. And the wrath of God, the fullness of the cup was poured out upon his son, Jesus Christ, for us. The love and wrath... The mercy and grace of God are seen at the cross, aren't they? But also the justice of God, the fairness of God, the fact that God must do something with sin. He cannot just let it go unrequited, undealt with. When you think about the cross, the holiness of God, the fact that God is pure and sinless, and the fact that God is wholly devoted to the very greatest glory there is, his own glory, Those things are seen in the cross as well. And so when we survey the wondrous cross, when we think about what Jesus did for us, we must think about God and what he's like. But we also need to think about Jesus and the fact that in his deity and in his humanity, you see so much of the price that was paid for us on that day. What I'd like for us to do this morning is just look at the first three statements that Jesus made from the cross and ask ourselves the question, what do these things say about the character of Jesus? What do they say 
about ourselves. Open your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning to Luke chapter 23, the passage that was just read a moment ago. Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. When you study the seven statements of Jesus from the cross, the first thing that he says in Luke 23 verse 34 is a word of forgiveness. As they nail his hands and feet to the cross, it's a prayer. Here's what he says, Luke 23 verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I'd like to make three observations about that statement worthy of your reflection this morning. In the first place, I want you to observe that Jesus is a man of prayer. His ministry was filled with prayer from beginning to end, from start to finish, first and last. Jesus was a man consistently of prayer. He prayed before his apostles were selected. He prayed when he was hungry. He prayed when people were hurting. He prayed when people succeeded in following Jesus and following God. Jesus is a man of prayer. And three times from the cross, three of the seven statements that we're going to talk about today are in fact prayers, starting with this one. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Notice that there is a relationship that Jesus has with his heavenly father. It's not as if this is the first time he's ever called out and cried out to his God. Jesus spoke to his father and there's a sense of familiarity and there's a sense of reverence for who God is. But notice as well, as you think about Jesus's statement here, notice that Jesus' prayer is not for himself first and foremost. The other two prayers would be Matthew 27 verse 46. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, this evening. But he's talking about himself in that prayer. And in Luke 23 verse 46, the last thing he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A prayer about his own spirit, about what's happening with him. But not this first one. It's a prayer for the people that were nailing him to the cross. It's a prayer for others. Stop and think about what Jesus was going through at the moment. They had nailed his hands to the cross. The hands that he had used to touch lepers and to bless little children, those hands were no longer able to be involved in that ministry. The feet that had taken him to so many places on missions of mercy, they were nailed in place, fastened in place to the cross. His hands and feet were no longer useful. But Jesus could still pray. One of the lessons I take away as I think about Jesus praying for his enemies at the cross is the fact that prayer is a ministry no matter whether we can use our hands and feet, no matter what we're able to do otherwise with our health and our abilities, prayer is a ministry that is worthwhile and it is in many ways the very best ministry we could ever be involved in. May God help us to be men and women of prayer, and especially in times of crisis and suffering. Jesus spoke a word of forgiveness. He's a man of prayer. Notice, secondly, as you think about the words of Jesus in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's a man of mercy. Mercy is treating someone better than they deserve. 
God, these people are nailing me to the cross. They have done so unjustly. They have done so illegally. They have done so sinfully. God, I'm praying for you to forgive them because they know not what they're doing. This is the one who said and preached, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, verse 7. This is the one who said that the thing that is most important in this world is forgiveness. When people would come to Jesus, for example, in Mark chapter 2, when the friends of the, of the lame man let him down through the roof, through the hole in the roof, the Bible says that the first thing Jesus said to the lame man in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Because Jesus knew that even though this man couldn't get up and walk, that wasn't his biggest problem. His biggest problem was that he was a sinner in need of redemption, in need of forgiveness, in need of cleansing. And as people continually are trying to tell us what's most wrong with the world around us, and everybody's got an opinion about that, the words of Jesus from the cross ought to resonate in all of our ears, no matter what our political viewpoints and perspectives might be. The thing that people need is to be forgiven by God. More than anything else, Father, forgive them. And the thing that the cross accomplished, brothers and sisters and friends, is the forgiveness of mankind. That's why he was dying. That's why he was giving his life for us. He's a man of mercy. He treats us better than we deserve. Out of all the problems that we face in life, out of all the challenges that we, that we are confronted with, only sin goes with us after we die. Only sin stays with us when we leave this world. Jesus died so that we might be forgiven of our sin. He treats you and he treats me better than we deserve. And if the enemies who nailed him to the cross could find forgiveness, so can you and I. Think about what Jesus says in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He is not just a man of prayer and mercy, but he's a man of perception. They know not what they do. Have you ever stopped to think about what that means? Did they not understand that they were nailing somebody to the cross? They did. Did they not understand that the point of all of this was that Jesus was going to be crucified and going to die? That's exactly what they wanted. Crucify him, crucify him. In fact, the high priest had said in John chapter 11 that it's good for one to die so that the good of the nation can be accomplished. So they understood on an intellectual level, on a basic level, they were crucifying somebody. But Jesus says they know not what they do. Well, maybe somebody might make the case for this. They might say, well, maybe the problem is, maybe what Jesus is talking about is they didn't really understand that he was innocent. I don't know that I buy that either. There were plenty of people who declared the innocence of Jesus. Pilate, among all, if you, if you read Luke chapter 23 this, this week as you thought about the crucifixion of Jesus, at least three times in Luke 23, Pilate says, this man has done no evil. I can find no fault in him. What evil has he done? Why do you want to crucify him? In fact, it was pointed out in our family discussion that Pilate picked Barabbas specifically because Barabbas was the actual worst criminal Pilate could think of. This is the one guy that I've got in prison right now that's bound for a cross. This is the one guy that I'm sure, because of popular opinion, people will reject and they'll say, no, I'm not going to have Barabbas come back out into society. And they said, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. 
So did they not know that Jesus was innocent? I don't believe that's true either. So what does it mean when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Here's what I believe Jesus is saying. Listen, when we sin, we don't ever see the full depth of what's happening. We don't ever understand the full implications of what sin does. We think of sin as a mistake. Okay, there might be a few consequences. We'll go on with our lives. We'll just forget about it. We don't understand the full depth and the gravity of what's happening when we sin. And I believe that's what Jesus is talking about. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8, Paul says, If the kings of this world, the rulers of this world had understood what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Wouldn't have done it. If we could see the full implications and the full consequences and the full penalty of our sin in the moment we were doing it, we wouldn't have done it. Acts 2 verse 23, Peter accused his audience just about seven weeks after this. He said, you have taken him with lawless hands and you've put him to death. Did they know what they were doing? Did they know that what they were doing was lawless? Absolutely. But they didn't understand the full implications of what they were doing. Thanks be to God that Jesus Christ prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He can perceive and understand the depth and the gravity of sin. And he wants us to see as we look to the cross, this is the price that must be paid. Every time you sin, every time I sin, the penalty that must be paid for that sin is the cross. They know not what they do. A word of forgiveness. Before we leave this point, I want you to think about something. Jesus wants more than anything else to forgive you. He wants more than anything else for you to come to him in humble faith and submission and put him on in baptism to have the remission of sins. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. More than anything else, that's what he wants. He wants it so badly and so deeply that he died to make that possible for you. Sometimes people think God is against them, that God is not caring about them, that God is absent. More than anything, Jesus wants you to come to him. People are forgiven when they come to him in humble, submissive faith. Turn to another passage with me, if you would. As you continue to look at Luke chapter 23, just look down a few verses. And notice verses 40 through 43, the second statement that Jesus made from the cross. What I've done this morning, by the way, or today, is put these more or less in best guess, the order in which they were spoken. And so Luke contains three of the statements of Jesus from the cross. John contains two of the statements of Jesus from the cross. Other accounts have other statements. And so as you look at these and kind of try to piece them together, what sequence were they given in? This seems to be maybe one timeline, most logical sequence. But as you look at Luke chapter 23, verses 40 through 43... Jesus speaks in verse 43 to a thief, and he makes a promise to the thief. Look, if you would, at the passage, Luke 23, verse 43. Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. A word of promise. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, the Bible says that Jesus was going to be numbered with the transgressors. There was not just one cross on Calvary that day. There were three crosses. And as people walked by, these looked looked like ordinary criminals 
suffering the consequences and penalties for their crimes. That's what people thought as they were coming in and out. It was Passover. It was a busy time in Jerusalem. And they saw those three crosses. It's interesting to think about the way Jesus came into the world and about the way Jesus left the world. Humble from start to finish. He came into this world. He was born in a stable and surrounded by animals, farm animals. It wasn't as romantic as people try to make it when they put their nativity scenes on their lawn. It was dirty. It was dingy. It was not the place you'd want to give birth to a baby. And when Jesus left this world, he left being numbered with the transgressors, with criminals. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet he shows us that humility is the path to honoring God. Now notice there were two crosses that day other than the one that Jesus was suffering on. Two thieves. In Luke 23, verse 39, the Bible indicates that one thief rebelled against Jesus. In Luke 23, verse 39, the Bible says, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. You know, Matthew's account that you read this week tells us that both of the thieves said these kinds of things. And that is interesting because Luke just points out this one, and then he points out the attitude of the other thief. Evidently, the other thief had a change of heart at some point. But this first one that we just read in Luke 23, verse 39, right along with the enemies of Jesus, he turns and he talks to the dying man on the cross next to him. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Rebellion. But as you look at the other thief, he repented. In Luke 23, verse 40, the other thief says, He rebukes him. He says, do you not even fear God, seeing that we are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Think about the contrast between Christ and the thieves on the cross. They were paying the penalty for their crimes and sins. They were guilty. Jesus was innocent. They were suffering involuntarily. Nobody, they didn't volunteer for the cross, but Jesus was suffering willingly. There's a contrast there. They were paying the price for their own sins. Jesus was paying the price for everyone's sins because he himself was pure and innocent and without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. And so this thief repents This man has done nothing wrong. And then he makes an amazing statement in verse 42 of Luke 23. He says, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. A dying man saying to another dying man, I want you to remember me. And the Bible indicates that Jesus made a promise. That's what Luke 23, 43 is. It's a promise. And notice the certainty of it. Jesus begins the statement by saying verily or truly. Truly, I say to you, is this certain? Can I take this to the bank? Is this going to happen? Jesus gives the promise with certainty, but he also talks about the speediness of it. This day, we're going somewhere, you and me, thief. This day, we will be somewhere else. Our bodies may remain nailed to these crosses. People will take our bodies down and do with them what they will, but we will be elsewhere this day. Notice the company of it. You will be with me, Jesus says. You will be with me. 
and the gloriousness of the promise in paradise. The Bible indicates that the righteous dead go to a place where there is no sorrow, no sickness. And Jesus said to that thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in that place. It's a promise. And what's amazing to me is that Jesus, a dying man, makes a promise to another dying man about the future. And even today, Jesus makes promises to dying men. You know, when you stop and think about it, none of us are going to live forever. We are all, in a sense, terminal. We're all going to leave this world one day if the Lord doesn't return first. And there are promises to be made because of what Jesus did at the cross Jesus promises that what Paul said of Philippians 1.21 is true. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's something beyond this life. Everybody's going to spend eternity somewhere. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. John 11 verse 25 and 26 because of what he did at the cross, there are promises that are available to you and me. Don't leave this life without accepting and embracing the promise that Jesus Christ makes. By the way, some people say, well, the thief on the cross proves that you don't have to be baptized in order to be redeemed. A couple of things quickly by way of response. Number one, while Jesus was on earth, he had the power to forgive sin any way he wanted. He could forgive sin any way he wanted. Number two, you don't know who this thief was, where he came from. You don't know anything about him except that he suffered on that cross. John the Baptist had been baptizing people in the wilderness for years before Jesus came. And you don't know that that thief wasn't baptized at some point. I'm just making that point for argument's sake. Somebody says, well, maybe he wasn't baptized. Jesus could have forgiven sins any way that he, he wanted to. But that thief on the cross, you don't know where he came from. You don't know what he believed. You don't know what he did. You just know that Jesus made a promise to him and forgave him. Because Jesus had the right to do that. Incidentally, one more thing, he lived and died under the Old Testament system, under the Old Covenant. We're not saved by the Old Covenant, we're saved by the New, the promises that Jesus makes in the Gospel. A word of promise. Number three this morning, turn with me if you would to John chapter 19. What does Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Truly this day you will be with me in paradise. What does he say from the cross? As we learn about his character, as we learn about what pours out, what comes out when he's suffering. In John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, a word of devotion. John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Let's read together. John's account contains some unique aspects and some unique statements that are not found in the other, other three gospel accounts. Beginning in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. 
There's a question about how many women are being named in verse 25. Is it three or four? I'm going to take the position this morning that it's three, but you can do some research on that if you like, and maybe there's four. I do know who three of them are because if you compare and contrast Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, there are three women that are definitely there. One of them is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. And it's an interesting thought to ask. When Mary Magdalene was standing there at the cross, looking at Jesus, hanging there and dying, his life pouring out of the wounds in his hands and his feet, out of the thorn of, crown of thorns that was, that was there on his head, as she was looking at him, what's she thinking? What's going, in, going on in her heart? What's going on in her mind? For Mary Magdalene, the cross was a place of redemption. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, as well as... Mark chapter 16, verse 9, that Mary Magdalene had at one point in the past had seven demons inside of her, and Jesus was the only one who could cast out demons. He had done something for her that no one else ever could. And brothers and sisters and friends, when Jesus redeems us, he is doing for us what no one else ever could. And as we look at the cross, we ought to think about it the way Mary Magdalene thought about it. That's the deliverer. That's the redeemer. That's the one who can do for me what no one else can. She looked at the cross and she saw it as a place of redemption. Her deliverer was dying. But not only was Mary Magdalene there, another Mary was there. Another woman was there. The mother of James and John, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Mary's sister. And interestingly enough, it had not been that many days earlier that she had come with James and John, her two sons, to Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. And you know what she asked for? She kind of came on behalf of her sons and she said, Lord, Will you give James and John, my boys, the right and left hand when you sit on your throne in the kingdom? Can they be your number one and number two? Can they be your, your first lieutenants? They want a place of power. They want a place of authority. And, and you know they're good guys. And by the way, I'm your mother's sister. You ought to listen to me. And when we look at the cross... When Matt, that woman looked at the cross, she must have been rebuked. You know, sometimes we're all about ourselves and we think the world revolves around us. And if people don't think that we're special or important, or if they don't approve of the way that, that we're doing things, we, we think that that's just the worst thing in the world. And we look for power and we look for prominence and we look for authority and we look for position and we, we try to get those things for ourselves. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, verse 45, the path to true greatness is always, always, always through sacrificial service. The cross is a place of rebuke for those who think that there's greatness to be found any other way. Think about Mary, Jesus' mother, John chapter 19, verse 25. I'm fascinated as I read this series of statements from the cross that so much of what Jesus says is out of concern for others. Father, forgive them. He's concerned about sin. 
Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't have to say that, but he's concerned about a thief's soul. Woman, behold your son. He looks down and he sees Mary. And there's some interesting things going on there. Mary, his mother. Back in Luke chapter 2, verse 35, when Jesus was born, they brought him to the temple. Someone prophesied to Mary and they said, a sword is going to pierce your soul. And you observe Mary in the gospel of John. In John chapter 2, Mary is present. And in John chapter 19, Mary's present, but she's absent everywhere else in the gospel of John. In John chapter 2, she's there at a wedding. They don't have enough wine, Jesus. What are you going to do about it? And in John chapter 19, she's standing silently. She doesn't say anything in John's account. No words in her mouth. But she's standing there. And you know the sword is piercing her soul because that's her son. I've always wondered where Joseph was, Mary's husband. It seems like it may well be the case that Mary's husband died at some point in Jesus' youth because he's not mentioned after Matthew chapter 2, for example. He's never mentioned in the narrative accounts again. And so Jesus, being the oldest, looks and sees his mother, who's going to take care of her, who's going to provide for her. Woman, behold your son. A place of reward. Jesus understood about people that broken hearts are very, very serious. Broken hearts are worse than broken arms. And while the church ought to be praying for people with broken arms and with health problems and health troubles, we also ought to tune in and pray about people with broken hearts. Jesus made provision for his mother when her heart was broken. A place of reward. Notice this as well. He didn't just say, behold your son to Mary. But he turned to the disciple whom he loved. Now I wonder who that is. As you're looking at John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. Who's the disciple whom he loved? In the gospel of John, it's John. Someone has said that in the gospel of John, Jesus is never invisible and John is never visible. He doesn't use his own name. For him, it's a place of responsibility. When he looks at the cross and he sees Jesus dying, he sees all these other things, redemption, rebuke, because he's one of the ones that was asking for place and prominence in the kingdom. He sees the reward Jesus provides for his mother, but he also understands this is a place of responsibility for me. Jesus uses people. He uses people to carry on his work in this world. Jesus was suffering and dying for the sins of humanity. And Jesus looked at John and he said, take this woman and treat her as your mother. And the Bible goes on to say from that moment on, he took her into his own home. The cross is a place of responsibility. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, Jesus pictures the judgment day. And he said, I'm going to say to people on that day, inasmuch as you did things to the least of these, my brethren, you did them unto me. Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. Jesus wants to use you and me to carry out his work in this world. When we talk about being near the cross, we ought to be thankful for the redemption that's provided. We ought to be thankful for the promises that are enjoined upon us because of what Jesus did. But we also ought to remember that being near the cross is also about responsibility before God. It's also about 
how can I best serve and follow in the footsteps of Jesus that God might be glorified? When somebody suffers, that's when we find out what our character really is all about. And all of us, when we suffer, we'd have to admit, you know what, my character's not as great as I thought it was. I'm not doing as well as I estimated earlier. When Jesus suffered, grace and goodness and promises and hope are what poured out. When we survey the wondrous cross, we ought to listen very carefully to the words that our Savior uttered. We're going to stop here, and this evening we'll talk about the last four of the statements that Jesus made from the cross. But I want to ask you as we close this morning, have you come to Jesus Christ And have you found the forgiveness that only he can provide? If you've not, there's no better opportunity than right now to put him on in baptism. Galatians 3 verse 27. If you need to respond to heaven's invitation this morning, if we can help you by praying for you, by talking with you, by visiting with you about about whatever's going on, we'd love that opportunity. Won't you make your need known while together we stand and while we sing?